Welcome to Expanding Your Faith with Bishop Gregory Godsey and Father Matthew Schnabel. Expanding Your Faith looks at modern faith and spirituality questions, as well as conducts interviews with movers and shakers in different and varied faith traditions. Our broadcast is brought to you by the hardworking staff at the Office of Communications and Media Relations in the Old Catholic Churches International. Stay tuned as we work on expanding your faith. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Glad you all could join us tonight for another episode of Expanding Your Faith. We have Father Matt here with us today. Hello. And uh, a whole plethora of people, all five of them on you now, who are ready to ask their questions as we go along. And tonight's topic is the old Catholic churches, and uh, more specifically, uh, we'll have a segment on the differences between old Catholicism and Roman Catholicism, and then probably some Q&A from our listening audience. Uh, I want to thank everyone who listened to our previous episode. If you haven't uh, watched it or listened to it yet, uh, please do so uh, with uh, soon-to-be Rabbi uh, Haley Silvers um, as we discussed uh, the upcoming event of Passover. Uh, it was a very good broadcast. We quite enjoyed it. And we'll have um, Rabbi Haley on again sometime in the very near future to do a part two. So um, stick around for that. Uh, watch for that to come up in the days and weeks to follow. So what is old Catholicism? Well, I guess I'll start it off uh, since I tend to be the go-to guy when people uh, have questions about old Catholicism, even in our movement. Um, Old Catholicism got started in 1122 A.D. with a break from um, between the Roman Church and the Old Catholic Churches in the Diocese of Utrecht. The Diocese of Utrecht uh, in the Netherlands uh, was besieged by uh, the Reformation at the time. And so uh, the Roman Church decided that it was best to grant uh, the Diocese of Utrecht autonomy be able to uh, make their own bishops and to govern their own polity and piety separate from Rome uh, in the hopes of keeping a Catholic presence in the Netherlands. And that seemed to work quite well for Rome and for the old Catholic churches up until um, uh, about the 1500s. But anyway, we'll get to that in a moment. So Essentially what uh, they did was they said, you can um, make your own bishops. You're going to have your own archbishop uh, over the Diocese of Utrecht. And we're not going to interfere. We're going to let you all just run it and handle it. You're going to be completely autonomous and independent. And it'll all be uh, fine. Uh, this autonomy, this independence, was confirmed by the Second and Fourth Lateran Councils, which are ecumenical councils of the Church. And Catholic theology on the councils are, as, as long as they are ecumenical and do not speak in error, which the, fourth, the Second and Fourth Lateran Councils have been noted to have not spoken in error, uh, then they are binding upon the whole Church. And to disagree with a council means auto-excommunication from the church. So it's binding law in the church. And so by confirming the autonomy of the, diocese, the Archdiocese of Utrecht in the Second and Fourth Lateran Councils, it's almost like double duty um, uh, protection for the Archdiocese of Utrecht. Um, that they were to remain independent and autonomous. And the Second and Fourth Lateran Councils went a step further in saying not only are they autonomous, they can never be taken back over, nor can any of their clergy, bishops, or archbishops ever be tried by a Roman tribunal for any reason. They were exempt from Roman tribunal. That's going to be important in a minute. So... Um, it actually basically said this is a completely autonomous, independent, freestanding, validly Catholic, validly sacramental um, church uh, within Catholicism. 
So then we fast forward. Everything's running well in the Netherlands for uh, several hundred years. We get to, I remember the Second and Fourth Lateran Councils were in the 1200s and 1300s. Then we get to um, um, the late 1500s, and Archbishop Peter Code, spelled uh, C-O-D-D-E, um, was the Archbishop of Utrecht. And the Pope at the time, well, he kind of thought he was above God and above the church councils and above everybody. He had the authority to do whatever he wanted to do, to heck with policy, to heck with piety, to heck with anything. So what he did was he summoned Peter Code to Rome to stand trial for heresy claiming that Peter Code had been practicing heresy in an effort to try to take back over the old Catholic churches in the Diocese of Utrecht. So he ordered Code to come and stand trial, and Code refused, saying the Second and Fourth Lateran Councils do not give you that authority. It exempts us from Roman tribunal. You cannot try us. Now, a little side note, uh, in the years that have passed since then, even Roman Catholic theologians, even the, um, uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, or what they used to call the Office of Holy Inquisition, has reviewed Peter Code's entire uh, history of writings and sermons and the whole nine yards, the whole plethora, and have determined there was absolutely nothing heretical proclaimed by Peter Code. So it was trumped up charges. Well, a few years pass, and the Pope gets this brilliant idea, the Jubilee year, <coughs> which typically happens at the beginning of every new century, was about to occur uh, for 1600 in Rome the opening of the holy doors, the whole nine yards. So he reached out to Peter Code and he said, we want you to come as an honored guest at the Jubilee celebration, the opening of the holy doors. And Peter Code, foolishly against his advisor's best efforts, decided to uh, take them up on the offer as a hope that this might be an olive branch, a chance to work collegially with the uh, Curia in Rome. And so he set off for Rome. He arrived in Rome only to find uh, the Swiss Guard ready to take him into custody. So they arrested him and locked him up in the tower at Castle di Angelo and where he awaited trial. So the Pope convened a tribunal, well-placed and hand-picked cardinals and bishops and clergy to oversee the tribunal. And the first tribunal heard evidence on both sides about whether or not Peter Code was uh, a heretic and you know whether he was fit to be Archbishop of Utrecht and everything. The first tribunal ruled they found no heresy in his work. The Pope flew into a rage, dismissed the tribunal, and continued Peter Code's imprisonment. The next year, he convened another tribunal of well-picked, hand-picked people to hear the case against Peter Code. So, Tribunal meets again, hears evidence on both sides, and once again declares no heresy found in Peter Code's work. This happened five times, five different tribunals. Finally, the Pope decided to just leave him locked up. So when it became evident to Peter Code that he was not going to get out of imprisonment, there was not going to be another tribunal, the Pope was not going to accept that he was uh, free of heresy and that he was a legitimate Archbishop of Utrecht. He wrote to the, uh, what's called the Diocesan Chapter, which is the Cathedral Chapter in Utrecht, 
They were the ones given the authority to elect the new archbishop and says, I am completely impeded. Please elect a new archbishop of Utrecht. They resisted for a little while, but eventually gave in, and Geraldus Gull was elected as the new Archbishop of Utrecht. Within a few years of that, Peter Coe was finally released from imprisonment by the next pope, uh, who was just as much of an ardent uh, hater of old Catholicism. And uh, finally he released him, and a few years later, Peter Coe died, mostly due to his mistreatment while he was imprisoned. So the next pope sends new Roman Catholic bishops and priests to the Netherlands to start a uh, Roman Catholic presence in the Netherlands. Well, the people in the Netherlands were pissed off because uh, they had held Peter Code for decades in imprisonment and mistreated him, that they essentially tar and feathered and ran him out on rail. So the Roman Catholics went back to Rome with their tail between their legs. So the Pope did this several times before finally managing to get some Roman Catholic presence to stick in the Netherlands. This is where the name Old Catholicism comes from. Because up until that point, they were the only Catholic church in the Netherlands, um, the Old Catholics were. But because there was a new group of Catholics in the Netherlands, the people began calling the Old Catholics the Old Catholics, and the other branch were Roman Catholics. So that's where we get our name from. Fast forward to the late 1800s. <laughs> I know this is all boring to people, but fast forward to the late 1800s, and the First Vatican Council occurs, and the Pope declares himself infallible. That when talking about matters of doctrine and faith, uh, when confirmed by the College of Cardinals, when speaking ex cathedra, he cannot be an error. He cannot make he cannot sin while speaking ex cathedra on matters of faith and doctrine. Well, some of the bishops in Germany were not terribly fond of this idea. They felt it was an idea that could be abused and misused and would end up ultimately being a, a very bad thing for the church. So they decided they would break from the Roman church. And knowing about the old Catholics in Utrecht, they decided to align themselves with the old Catholics in Utrecht. Well, the old Catholics in Utrecht were not a very large group to begin with. The Roman Catholics in Utrecht have never been a large group anyway. It's mostly Protestant. So, um, they were a small group, and the German bishops were large and had a lot of followers in Germany. And before you know it, the um, new old Catholic adherents in Germany whisked away control of the Archdiocese of Utrecht and moved it to Bonn, Germany, and created what's called the Union of Utrecht. This was one of the big mistakes in old Catholic history, was this idea of creating the Union of Utrecht. Because um, now Utrecht was no longer in control or authority over old Catholics. Germany was. And so the German bishops, outnumbering the Utrechtian bishops uh, 10 to 1, mm -hmm. basically had complete and utter control over anything that happened uh, under the Union of Utrecht. So, the Union of Utrecht voted in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that they were going to set up a system whereby there could only be one official old Catholic church in any given nation. So, for instance, if a church of Sweden decided it wanted to be the old Catholic presence in Sweden, no other churches in Sweden, old Catholic or otherwise, could be that presence in Sweden. It could only be that one church, the Church of Sweden. And the reason they did this was they had sent Archbishop Harris Matthews, or Matthew Harris, I always get it confused, to the United States to set up a United States branch of old Catholicism 
And him and uh, Bishop Villa came to the United States to basically set up old Catholic missions here, starting in Wisconsin and Michigan. Well, it was not long before uh, Archbishop uh, Harris and Villat fell out of favor in the Union of Utrecht. So as a way of punishing um, them, what they did was uh, they made this proclamation and then immediately went to the Episcopal Church in the United States and offered them the title of Old Catholic in the United States. And the Episcopal Church accepted it. So the official Old Catholic representative for the Union of Utrecht in the United States is the Episcopal Church USA. So what does that mean for us Old Catholics in the United States? Essentially, nothing. All of us hold the same apostolic succession out of Utrecht as the, uh, in fact, we actually hold it where many of the Episcopalians don't. But uh, we hold the Old Catholic succession and we've been continuously trying to build an Old Catholic presence here um, rather than trying to convert people to Episcopalian theology. But it doesn't matter to Utrecht. They still only want one body that's old Catholic in any given nation. So, that's kind of the sordid history of Utrecht and where old Catholics come from. Um, there's a question from Spider. He says, how many different types of Catholics are there? <laughs> that's a good question. There are 38 unique Catholic churches in the world not a part of the Roman Catholic Church. They are all validly Catholic, and they are all um, pretty much independent of each other to a certain degree. There may be some inner workings between them, but most of them are independent from each other. And the other part of the question is, did all the Catholics break away from old Catholics or from others? Well, that's a good question, but that's another long sort of history lesson. Essentially, Roman Catholics broke away from old Catholics uh, because we weren't going anywhere. They're the ones who chose to cut us free. Um, so it had nothing to do with um, us breaking away, even though Rome today swears we broke away from them. And that's not the history. Even their own history makes it clear that they granted us autonomy we didn't ask for. And it was really to settle an argument between the Holy Roman Emperor and his brother in mm -hmm. the Netherlands. So That was part of it. Philip of Burgundy and the investiture scandal that started in 1122 in the Council of Worms um, is what started it all. But the official line is that it was to protect Catholicism in the Netherlands from the Reformation. So that was a part of it. But there's another deep, dark side to it as well. Uh, other Catholics, the other 38, have a distinct history as to why they broke away or were granted their autonomy or however it comes about. And one split in Catholicism in particular, um, both sides point fingers at the other, and that is the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics. And, of course, the reality is they're both to blame for the split because they were both hard-headed and wouldn't sit down at the table. That's another matter entirely. And they both auto-excommunicated each other. It was a really fun little, little yeah. jot in church history. In 1054. So to be honest, Roman Catholicism has only existed since 1054. So has Eastern Orthodoxy, because before that was a unified Catholic Church. And we, as old Catholics, have existed since 1122, which technically means that we're just about as old as the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. They just don't like to hear that. So we get a lot of pushback when we mention that. Uh, those were good questions. Thank you, Spider. And so um, now Father Matt's going to give a little bit of a discussion on the differences between Old Catholicism and Roman Catholicism. Well, some of the main differences are mostly theological issuances. Um, 
or doc doctrinal issues, really. Um, one of the big ones also that that are really the first the first big one um, also came from the the first Vatican Council, which was the declaring of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which. We all know the Immaculate Conception of Jesus, that Jesus was born without sin, never committed any sin, yada, yada, yada. The theologians of the First Vatican Council that were presenting this argued, well, if Jesus was born without sin, then Mary had to have been born without sin. Which, a lot of the detractors from that, including the German bishops... We're, we're saying, well, if we, if we grant this as dogma, which they ended up doing, um, it's just going to continue this downward spiral of, well, if we do this, then Mary's parents are going to have to be declared. And then if Mary's parents are declared, then their parents are going to have to be declared. And see the point, you know, Mary. So that, that also caused a rift with the German bishops. Now, as time emerged and went on, um, other issues have split us, not really split us, but separated us from Rome um, as far as doctrine. Um, the big one was clerical, clerical celibacy. Um, af right after our split, we decided that um, the celibate, clerical celibacy was not working so we allowed our clergy to start marrying if they so choose chose to do so um we were one of the first jurisdiction um jurisdictional denominations to ordain women and then we were also the first to accept lgbt people into holy orders so a lot of things spiraled and allowed us to be more progressive because of our autonomy from rome but still keep our catholic heritage Am I missing anything? Any big ones? LGBTQI for you. I got that. Um, we, we have an open communion. Oh yes, we open communion up. We were also the we also um, during our um, just after our split um, decided to change the wording and the wording of the mass from latin to vernacular meaning whatever language was spoken in that country would be what language the mass was said in and allowed latin to be an option and not a not a mandate like the like catholics did and catholics didn't change to the vernacular pattern until the second vatican council uh which was in 1960s roughly um old catholics do accept gay marriage um, most jurisdictions do. It's up to a, a jurisdictional, um, approach. So one jurisdiction can opt to and others, if they're more conservative leaning, can say no. Um, but for the ma the vast majority of old Catholic jurisdictions do accept gay marriage and, um, perform gay weddings. Of the official branches, um, most Catholics, um, will say they accept uh, LGBTQIA plus uh, individuals while still viewing them as second-class citizens. Whereas old Catholicism accepts them as they are and as equal part of the church. Um, other, uh, uh, other Catholic denominations, it varies. Um, some are very accepting, some are not. For instance, the Anglican Church is considered Catholic uh, in a list of that 38, but they um, it depends on what part of the Anglican communion you're a part of as to just how much they accept uh, LGBTQI individuals. And a second-class citizen is basically saying they'll tell you they love you, they'll tell you that you're accepted and affirmed and part of the church but then they'll say things like but you can't receive communion we're not going to bless your wedding we're not going to let you be a full part of the church but you can come and sit in the pew and give us your money um so that's what i mean by second class citizen yes neil what's your question
you do not have to be born into old Catholicism. In fact, most people convert. Um, and we have converts um, ranging from you know young kids all the way up to grown adults. So I jumped the pond. So. Yes. Anyone can convert uh, to old Catholicism. Yes. Um, I cannot convert. Uh, old Catholics cannot convert someone to Roman Catholicism. Um, <laughs> no, Neil, you're not going to help. Um, no, uh, <laughs> I cannot convert you to Roman Catholicism. Uh, only they can do that because they have their own process for that. That's a good question. Thank you. Um, any other questions? Any other questions? <laughs> <laughs> Where do uh, old Catholics and Roman Catholics stand on Islam? Um, Roman Catholics and old Catholics it's it's weird because what the Pope says um, what the Pope says um, one thing and then the Roman Curia says something else so the Pope has always been very open and affirming to our Muslim brothers and sisters um, in fact um, several Popes have gone to mosques and spent time um, um, with uh, uh, Muslim people of faith, uh, whereas the Curia still says, but they're going to hell. So it's kind of out of both sides of their mouth that they speak uh, in the Roman Church. Uh, you're going to find the same problem within jurisdictions of old Catholicism. So our jurisdiction, we don't hate on anyone who's a person of faith. Uh, as long as you're a person of faith and you treat people right and you love God and love your neighbor, we don't really care. Um, some jurisdictions, uh, in fact, I know of one that considers itself old Catholic, it still very much believes that uh, Muslims are going to hell and the problem of everything in the world, uh, that all Muslims are terrorists, which is bullshit. But um, that's still what some jurisdictions teach. So it just kind of depends on what branch of old Catholicism you're a part of. Um, no, Neil, I cannot do that for you. Um, let's see, Spider, the right age of baptism. Oh, well. You want me to answer that? Go right ahead. That? There is no right age to baptism. Um, in old Catholicism, the, or old Catholic theology, um, infant baptism is performed as well as baptism by choice. Um, if you're, if it's baptism by choice, it's typically followed by confirmation fairly quickly and you go through confirmation classes at the same time. Um, if it's uh, infant baptism, then the parents and godparents speak on behalf of that child and, and make a declaration that they will raise the child in the Christian faith and followed up by um, confirmation at the age of reason, which is about ooh, anywhere 10 after um, can be considered the age of reason. So... We kind of do a mixture between sprinkling and pour um, and not full submersion. We don't typically do full submersion in, in Western Catholicism. Here's, a, here's the difference. You have Western and you have Eastern. So Roman Catholicism, Old Catholicism uh, tend to be considered, uh, independent Catholicism seem to be, tend to be considered an Anglicanism tend to be considered um, uh, Western Catholicism. Uh, some of your Orthodox churches are considered Eastern uh, Catholic. So in Eastern Catholicism, some of them do fully submerge people for baptism. Um, and in Western Catholicism, it's typically either, bring, either sprinkle or pour, or brinkle, as I was going to say, um, which is kind of the mixture between pouring and, and sprinkling is pringle. Um, so, <laughs> oh Lord, I hope nobody's going to listen to this podcast. So, um, they, 
they kind of do a, a mixture in Western Catholicism. Uh, let's see. Molly says, Are there any branches of Catholicism that would think God is of many religions, hence why there are so many faiths and beliefs, and one God accepts all? I can't speak for a lot of the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholics because I only know a few of their branches theology, like Coptic and and Greek Orthodox and Russian, and, and I can tell you they would not necessarily think God is a God of all religions. No. Um, Western Catholicism, Anglicanism, some old Catholic jurisdictions... Uh, tend to view God as a God of all religions, that we all worship the same God. Roman Catholicism still stubbornly holds on to this concept that outside of the Roman Church there is no salvation, so no, they would not consider that to be accurate for them when it comes to uh, God. So uh, hopefully that helped answer your question, Molly. On matters of faith, do we pray to Mary, and if so, why not straight to God? Okay, um, so we do not pray to Mary as a deity. We do ask Mary to pray for us. Now, while some people say, well, that's a distinction without a distinction, it's not. There, there is a distinction. So we're not worshiping and praying to Mary as a deity. We are praying to God, praying to Mary to ask her to pray for us. Um, one of the prayers that I pray regularly at Memorare is remember, O Most Gracious Virgin Mary. Um, and my mind just went blank, sorry. But it, it's a prayer in which you insert your petition to ask Mary to pray for us. Uh, remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I come to thee, O Mother of Mothers. To thee I flee, and to thee I pray. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petition, but in your great love and mercy, hear and answer them through Christ our Lord. And then you say what your petition is. And she intercedes for us before God. Just like if I were to ask you to pray for me. So many Protestants do that and don't realize they're essentially praying to who they ask. If you ask somebody, praying is just asking God for something. If you're praying uh, and you say to somebody, pray for me, you're, you're doing the same thing we're doing for Mary. We're saying, Mary, please pray for us. Please ask God for this for us. So there you go. Um, so that's kind of how that works. And as far as praying straight to God, many Catholics pray straight to God. Um, they bypass asking anyone to pray for them and pray directly to God. How did the concept of baptism begin? Like, where did submersion and sprinkling traditions come from? So, in, in Earth, the concept of baptism became um, began very early in church, church life. Um, the early church fathers were known to practice baptism as well as the, um, the apostles. Um, Acts tells us this as well as uh, another source called the Didache, which was essentially the teachings of all the apostles put together in a manual for the early church fathers to have to teach others. Um, and then for some reason, a split in thought happened between East and West um, that some needed to be, that um, people needed to be submerged or people needed to be, be sprinkled um, to receive baptism and to receive the full grace. And the, the submersion people's um, theology was, while well, you're dying and being reborn, so the water acts as a tomb, and you're being plunged into the tomb and brought back out and resurrected with Jesus. And the sprinkle um, part of the theology is, is that you're washing away the stain of sin. So you'll hear in Western thought this, this, this feeling of a bath happening 
um, is where that washing away of the stain of sin comes from. But both are equally as valid. Um, the Didache says, says that innumerably. In fact, what they preferred you to do is for either sprinkle or submersion be totally naked and be dunked and whatever, which does not work for a public spectacle anymore the way we do baptism. So we've kind of gone away from that school of thought, but both are equally as valid and can happen. But that's essentially where those traditions came from, is it depends on what side of the aisle you, you your ancestral family sat upon. And the death and resurrection scenario works great if you have a fundamentalist pastor who likes to submerge until the bubbles stop. Yes. So, <laughs> just saying. Uh, but it also does harken back to uh, traditions predating Christ with the uh, ceremonial Hebrew bathing uh, that was done to cleanse people before celebrating things like uh, Shabbat or Passover. So there are some throwbacks even to that or in the, our baptism Or the ceremony. spiritual cleansing of a woman after her timely cycle and... Why is it Mary to pray through and not Jesus? Because Jesus is the way to God. So, <clears throat> it's, it's, an, it's a misunderstanding of concepts, okay? I, I really need to have like a chalkboard. I need to do the Fulton Sheen thing to, to make it absolutely understandable. Imagine a chalkboard back here and me writing on it, okay? So, we're not praying to Mary instead of Jesus. Okay? That's a misconception. I would say I could probably bet with 100% accuracy or pretty close to it, 99% accuracy, every person of faith that's in here has at some point or another asked someone to pray for them. Okay? Um, you asked Sally down the street to pray for your mama who's getting ready to go into the hospital for surgery, right? Just making up names and spitballing, okay? So, you have essentially prayed to Sally down the street because prayer is intercession. You've asked her, you've interceded to her to pray for your mama on your behalf. Now, are you not going to pray for your mama? Are you not going to ask Jesus to heal your mama? Of course not. You're going to continue praying to Jesus and ask. You are. I mean, I didn't, you're going to continue praying to Jesus and ask him to heal your mama or to make her surgery go well. But you also asked Sally. So you prayed to Sally to pray to Jesus for your mama. We as Catholics believe that just because the, the saints and people of faith who have died... Just because they're dead doesn't mean that they no longer can talk to God for us, can no longer intercede on our behalf, can no longer be present in our life, as it were. Okay? Uh, so it's just like me asking Sally to pray for my mama. I'm asking Mary to pray for my mama to Jesus. I'm still going to pray to Jesus and ask Jesus to be with my mama, but I'm also asking Mary to pray as well. Okay? So, it's the same general concept, it's just on a different plane. And so, um, Paul says in Scripture that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and they're cheering us on and egging us on and interceding for us. Well, that great cloud of witnesses Paul is talking about are all the saints and all the holy people who died before us. That's the great cloud of witnesses he's talking about. So they can still pray for us, and they can still interact with us, even though they're not with us anymore on this, in this realm. And so that's where we get the concept of asking the saints, asking Mary to pray on our behalf, is the fact that Paul says they're still interceding for us. They're still interacting with us, even though they're not here. Does that, does that help?
Okay, that's a good question, Spider. So, who are some of the saints, and what is the purpose of the saints? Were they real people? So, I'm not going to give all the thousands and thousands and thousands of saints in the Roman martyrology, okay? But, <laughs> I'll, I'll take out one example, one of my favorites. St. Maximilian Colby. And it's who our diocese here is actually named after. And he's my patron saint. And he's the saint that I took in my confirmation. Uh, when you're confirmed, you get to pick a saint as your patron saint. Okay, somebody kind of watches uh, over you and kind of, you know, you have a devotion to, okay? That's what a patron saint is. And so I picked Maximilian Colby for a couple of different reasons. Uh, Maximilian Colby was one of the only saints that we're aware of who was a ham radio operator. And I'm a ham radio operator. So, you know, we had that in common. St. Maximilian, as a teenager, the Blessed Mother supposedly appeared to him and came with two crowns. A white crown of purity and a red crown of martyrdom. And said, which crown do you want, Maximilian? And he says, can I not take both? And Mary said to him, both you shall have. So Maximilian was a priest. Um... I believe he was born in Germany, if memory serves, but um, ended up serving in Japan for a while. Had a monastery there in a very famous city called Hiroshima. And, uh, or Hiroshima, as some people call it. Anyway, um, and he went uh, many times there to uh, work with the Franciscans who were there, his brothers. And they actually had a Catholic magazine or newspaper that they would publish. So he's a publisher as well. Something I love to do is publishing. And it, they published this uh, newspaper or magazine about Catholic faith and Catholic matters. Now, when the bomb was dropped in Japan, um... Maximilian was not there. He was already in a concentration camp uh, in Auschwitz. But anyway, he uh, the story is told that the monks, uh, the friar, the friars, all gathered in the center of the monastery. Even though the monastery is not far from the town center where the bomb actually detonated, it was one of the few buildings left standing in Hiroshima. Hiroshima. And um, the monks, the friars who were in it, survived. They're the only people that are known that survived at Ground Zero for the bomb. Moving on. Maximilian was arrested for his faith because he was continuing to train Roman Catholics to be priests and deacons, uh, despite the mandate against it in Germany. He was arrested and taken to Auschwitz. And while in Auschwitz, a prisoner escaped. And the punishment for a prisoner escaping was that for every prisoner that escaped, ten others would be executed. Okay? So, they were selecting, the guards were selecting the ten to be executed. And they, they picked this one man who had a wife and two children. And uh, he begged and begged, please don't take me. I have a family. Please don't. And Father Maximilian Colby stepped out of the line and did something that was forbidden. Because it usually meant more people would die. And he went up to the guard and he says, take me instead, please, and leave this man. The guard looked at him for a moment and said, fine, get in line. And let the man go back into the, the line of people uh, standing there. And Maximilian went off to be executed. Word is that Maximilian could hear the Allies coming. You could hear the, the fighting getting nearer and nearer to Auschwitz in the days before he died. But they injected him with carbolic acid and took him two weeks to die. In, in that miserable state. 
And then, of course, his body was incinerated. Um, Maximilian, while he was in the prison camp, would celebrate mass for the prisoners using grains of rice and drops of water to celebrate mass for the other Catholics that were being held in Auschwitz. So he received not only the crown of purity, but he received the crown of martyrdom for his faith. So, yes, many of the saints in the martyrology are real people. And some of them, like St. Christopher, there's doubt, because St. Christopher, there's not a lot of historical evidence for him. We don't know that he was really a real person, because uh, he was so early in church history that there's not a lot of good records. But a lot of the newer ones are real people, just regular people, uh, just like you and me, just trying to do the best that they can. Um, how long does it take to get to each layer of church hierarchy, such as from deacon to bishop and so on? <clears throat> okay, so in the Roman Catholic Church, it's a little different, but in old Catholicism, our standard is, from the time you apply as a candidate, you have six months discernment period as a layperson, and then you go through a minimum of a year of training to make it to deacon. And then you have at least a minimum of a year of training between deacon and priest, although that can be a lot longer. And then from priest to bishop, it depends upon if the need for a bishop exists. We don't just make people bishops to make people bishops. If we need a bishop in a particular area, someone will be elevated. But they must have been a priest a minimum of five years before they can be made a bishop. So it's not something that just happens overnight. And many priests remain priests their entire life. They don't ever become bishops. So it's not like it's something that they can achieve to. It just happens. Honestly, it's not something you want to ask for either. No. Just saying. So Jerrica asks, is there a Catholic Bible versus a regular Bible, and what's the difference? Yes. The Catholic Bible has these interesting books in it about this kid with a wand and he lives in under a staircasing oh no that's Harry Potter never mind <laughs> have to have a little levity folks Sorry. yes <clears throat> the Catholic Bible has more books than the King James Version unless you have the King James Version with Apocrypha and it doesn't because there are books that, that the Catholic Bible has that most standard Bibles don't we have First and Second Maccabees. Um, we have Edris. We have Fail and the um, Dragon. Uh, Susanna and Bell and the Dragon. Um, we have extra chapters to Esther, um, Tobit, Wisdom. Yeah, Tobit you can't forget about. Um, wisdom, First and Second Maccabees. There's a few others. Uh, There's a couple extra verses of Jeremiah thrown in there. So in the regular Bible, uh, the Protestants decided they didn't like these books, and so they removed them. It was mainly Luther um, and Calvin got together, had a powwow, and said, this doesn't really fit with what we're, what we're thinking here, so we're just going to forget about it. Luther actually wanted to throw out the whole book of James from the Protestant canon as well, and he lost. Um. So, um, and, and a neat little tidbit for you, by the way. During the uh, Nicene Council, when uh, the bishops got together to put the Bible together, there was a fist fight between Bishop Athanasius, St. Athanasius, and the other bishops at council. Oh, fist yes, fight. that was fun. Uh, an actual fist fight. He beat the crap out of other bishops. The reason for this fist fight was he wanted the book of Revelation <laughs> to be in the Bible, and the other bishops did not. So he beat them until they said he could put Revelations in the Bible. Oh, the difference Christianity would have seen had Athanasius lost. <laughs> this is why some of my bishops uh, work out every day. I'm certain of it. Um, but we also have him to thank for the for the creed and for the doctrine of the Holy Trinity too. So there is truth to that. 
Athanasius was a decent man when it came to theology, not so decent as a human being. So, uh, but that's another matter entirely. And the, there'll be Eastern Orthodox people who will want to send hate mail. You can send it to Father Matt at mostly Coptic of the Coptic camp because their bishops got creamed by Athanasius. Um, yes. <laughs> Any other questions while we're on the topic? Yeah, so Athanasius had a knockdown drag out. It was it was funny. The Council of Nicaea opened with the uh, inspiring words of, Are you ready to rumble? Sorry. Any other questions? Sometimes church history is fun just because of the fact that it's so sorted and and has I, so much uh, and I keep, intrigue. And people wonder why I'm a church historian. Yeah, really. Yeah, really. <laughs> Those were all great questions. Thank you, Jerrica, for your question. I appreciate that. Um, so we've had a fun night tonight uh, looking at old Catholicism and various different topics about Catholicism. And uh, I think everybody is questioned out. So, uh, and that's not bad. We have a 50-minute podcast, uh, and we're only allowed 60 minutes, so that's not uh, too terribly bad. We did a good job. <clears throat> we don't have a topic for next week yet, uh, next Saturday, but we'll come up with one between now and then. And I'll put out some a word for everybody. We are on Spotify, I think Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and a bunch of others that I have never heard of before that Anchor releases our podcast to. So you can find us on any of those by looking up Expanding Your Faith. Um, And so we will uh, be back here again next Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern. If you do have any questions during the week for the podcast, feel free to leave a comment um, either uh, on one of the streams on anchor.fm I don't look at the other uh, streams pages, so only on Anchor FM, uh, Anchor.fm, or you can send your questions to um, Bishop Godsey, G-O-D-S-E-Y, at myocci.org. That's M-Y-O-C-C-I dot org, um, and just make sure to put in the subject line questions for podcast, um, and we'll be sure to. Uh, answer your questions. We'll have an episode at some point if there are enough questions coming in where we do nothing but answer questions from you guys. So please do send us your questions. Until next week, thank you all for joining us. I hope you have a blessed week. See you.